The following sermon was delivered by Executive Pastor Charlene Han Powell during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Han Powell. Let us pray. God of all power and grace, illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we can see the world and we can see ourselves the way you do. Amen. For those of you who have been around this place long enough, you know that we don't shy away from challenging topics. If anything, we run headfirst towards them. We've taken on the most controversial figures in the Bible. We've addressed the issues plaguing our nation. We've talked about everything from angels to demons, the apocalypse to the afterlife. But this fall, we are bringing things a little closer to home. This fall, we are talking about what lies at the core of our individual identities, what drives our daily decisions, what shapes our most important relationships. This fall, we are talking about our hearts. Now, if this makes you uncomfortable, good. It should, because there's no escaping the fact that our hearts need some work, some attention, some curating, if you will. After all, left unattended or uncared for, our hearts have the tendency to become distracted, hardened, angry, even broken. But more often than not, the best place to start is to acknowledge that we even have a problem at all, a problem that isn't helped by the fact that there are countless things that are vying for our attention and our affection, yet only a few things that are truly worthy which is why you're here, right? Which is why we are here. So let's continue this noble endeavor of curating our hearts. Before we move on, I want to quickly catch us up to this point in the sermon series. We started out in the month of September talking about what it means to love God and the things that God loves, virtues like justice and mercy. This month, we shift our focus to explore what it means to love Jesus and that which Jesus loves, or in today's case, that whom Jesus loves, us. Now, to the 12 topics being covered in this series, learning to love yourself seems the most unnecessary, maybe even the most unchristian. Out of all the things we need help learning to love, it's surprising to see our name on that list. Some might say we love ourselves a bit too much. In fact, I'm not sure there has ever been a time where we have been more obsessed with our own name, our own accomplishments, our own picture, than we are at this very moment in time. But obsession, my friends, is not the same as love. We may spend the vast majority of our lives working on our resumes, perfecting our bodies, crafting our online identity, and even treating ourselves, but that doesn't mean we are any more satisfied with what we see in the mirror or any more happy with who we have become. Turns out it's the exact opposite. In 2017, the World Health Organization reported that over 300 million people around the world suffer from depression. 
Recent studies show that over 17 million adults in the U.S. have experienced a major depressive episode in just this past year. In the past 20 years, the suicide rate in this country has risen by 30%, and among children and youth between the ages of 10 and 17, it has increased by 70%. Now, one might think that all this investment in self would produce a world full of healthy and happy individuals, or at the very least, people who like themselves or even love themselves. But as we can see, that is simply not the case. So how did we get here? Where did we go wrong? In his most recent book entitled The Second Mountain, author and New York Times columnist David Brooks explores, among other things, how our society developed this condition that he and many others call hyper-individualism. He starts by looking at our country in the aftermath of the Great Depression and World War II, a time where the reigning cultural ethos was, we are all in this together. United by common enemies and shared struggles, virtues like humility, duty, and conformity were honored and revered. You were what your country needed you to be, what your community needed you to be. In this moral ecology, it was all about the greater good, which meant that things like ego or self-love were to be avoided at all costs, even feared. Now, while this communal mentality sounds nice in many ways, the downside was severe. Recent television shows like Mad Men have captured the oppressive nature of this era. Women felt trapped and suppressed. Certain races, religions, and lifestyles were demonized and excluded. Survival of the whole trumped survival of self. So then came the backlash. Then came the 60s. Instead of we are in this together, it was all about I am free to be myself in place of humility, duty, and conformity. Values like individualism, authenticity, and autonomy were held in the highest regard. Communities were no longer just homogenous groupings of people, but collections of individuated individuals living together by the common code of to each his own. Live your life. You do you. Sound familiar? In this moral ecology, the individual is the ultimate source of authority, the northern point of one's moral compass, the arbiter of truth. You are free to be yourself, free to create your own destiny, your own future, your own path, your own value. You are what you make of yourself. You are the sum of your achievements, your possessions, your appearance. In other words, it is on you to be worthy of love. How does this play out in the world around us? Here's an example. When researchers at Harvard School of Education recently asked 10,000 middle and high school students if their parents cared more about their personal achievements or whether they were kind, 80% said their parents valued their individual success over their relational bonds. Friends, I think we already know the downside of this hyper-individualized, self-obsessed, it's all about me mentality. Just turn on the news. It's the depressed, divided, broken-hearted world we find ourselves in today. So if the hyper-communal approach didn't work and the hyper-individual 
approach doesn't work, how do we even begin to develop a healthy love of ourselves? If we are the ones who got us into this mess, how do we get out of it? Well, from my point of view, there are two things we can do. The first is to literally get out of the mess. The prevailing cultural mantra is that each of us is the center of the universe, and as a result, it is every man, woman, and child for themselves. We see this play out everywhere from the playground to politics. And like any effective mantra, it gains power by being reinforced over and over and over again. Voices that seek to divide us into distinct individual parts. Voices that set up binary systems where you are either in or you're out. It's either us or them. You're either wrong or you're right. Voices that reinforce the notion that our worth, our ability to be loved, is up to us. Voices so loud, it's hard to get a word in edgewise. There is this beautiful Quaker tradition called a clearness committee. Unlike Presbyterian committees, you only convene this kind when you actually need it. Usually, usually it's called for when an individual needs clarity or direction about a particular area in their life. For example, should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Should I move to this city? Even, am I worthy of love? A group of trusted confidants gathers together. They worship. The individual shares their dilemma. The group asks questions. And then they reflect back what they heard in hopes of providing clearness or insight. It's not unlike the way our small groups function here at Fifth Avenue, intimate, vulnerable, and compassionate. Now imagine a clearness committee where countless people are involved, your best friend since high school, and that random person you sat next to in biology, your kind aunt and your cruel uncle, your favorite public figure and your least favorite public figure. And while we're at it, let's just throw in a handful of complete strangers from God knows where who know nothing about your life. Not so clear anymore, right? It's funny because we are all so connected by this crazy global social network where we are sharing our mundane moments, celebrating our life accomplishments, and even grieving major loss in front of a mass audience. And in the process, we are letting a limitless number of voices tell us who we are. If we are good enough, smart enough, interesting enough, worthy enough to be loved. Now, I know that we would like to think that we can stay above the fray, but at the volume these lesser voices are speaking, at the frequency these lesser voices are preaching, how can they not begin to shape our understanding of ourselves? How can they not begin to shape our very hearts? Which is why the first step at learning to love ourselves is to make the conscious and concerted choice to get out of the mess, to filter the noise, to find some quiet, and then discern which voices really matter, to decide who gets a say in the matter of our lives. I'll never forget what it was like for me on November 9th, 2016, the day after the most recent presidential election. To witness the vitriol and div division tearing our country apart was bad enough. But then to see news coverage of buildings being spray painted, make America white again. My stomach sank and my heart 
broke. As the daughter of two immigrants, as a Korean-American woman, as the mother of a mixed-race child, I felt that whoever wrote those ugly words was talking about me, making a judgment about me. But as loud and as angry as those voices were, I knew better than to give them more airtime than they deserved. Instead, I surrounded myself with the voices in my life I have come to trust, voices of compassion and truth, voices of grace and hope, voices that tell me, remind me, encourage me of who I really am, and most importantly, where I come from. Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. You see, after you've flushed out the voices of those that don't really matter, then you have the space to listen to the voices that do. Voices that will surely tell you, remind you, that the God we love, the God we worship, made each and every one of us in his image, made each and every one of us in her image, and then called us good. The God of justice and mercy sees all of our hopes and our fears, our joy and our pain, our humility and our vanity, and embraces it all, accepts it all, loves it all. And not because we have done anything to deserve it or need to do anything to deserve it. God painted all of creation, ourselves included, with that divine brush and then called it good. Not mediocre, not average, not even meets expectations, but good. If the creator of the universe loves us as we are, then how can we not do the same? Which leads me to the second thing we can do to better love ourselves. Once we are clear on who does get a say in the matter of our hearts and who doesn't, once we have accepted that we have been created in the image of God, once we have gotten out of the mess, there's only one thing left to do. And that is to get right back in. Matthew 3, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. 
Friends, if you have ever had any doubts about how God feels about humanity or about how God feels about you, this passage ought to clear things up. Because after we took on the divine image, the divine took on ours. And again, God saw it and was pleased. We see in this passage from Matthew that Jesus fully embraces his place in the human race, his membership in the mess. Even as the son of God, he didn't see himself as a party of one, separate from the whole, set apart from the rest. No, his calling, his joy was being one of us. That is what made him such a powerful teacher and such an amazing friend. And that is what makes him such a beautiful savior. But just because he became one of us doesn't mean he wasn't also distinctly himself. Despite the voices that were constantly screaming against him, Jesus was always clear on who he was, his unique destiny, his special purpose. He never ceased to be an extraordinary individual, even though everything he did was for the sake of others. And in the end, that is exactly what made him so extraordinary. From day one, he knew he belonged to the whole, just as the whole belonged to him. You see, if Jesus is the beloved son of God, if you are a beloved child of God, then that means we are all in this together as children of God. It's not just about your survival or my success, but that doesn't mean we disappear either. Loving ourselves means seeing ourselves as an essential part to this magnificent whole where we matter a lot, but so does everyone else. And unlike seeing our world as a population of one, seeing ourselves as a part of this greater reality actually makes us bigger, makes us better, makes us more whole. If Jesus taught us anything in his life and in his death, it's that loving yourself ultimately means giving yourself away. On the cover of your bulletin, you'll find a fascinating work of art that first debuted in 1993 at the Whitney Biennial. First, I want you to just pick one of the panels on this piece of art. I know it's hard, it's a little grainy, um, but pick one of the rectangles, focus in on it. Notice its color, its shade, its unique beauty. Now zoom out. It's important to note that you're only seeing a portion of this piece, maybe a few dozen panels, because in its entirety, this work actually contains over 400 panels, each one representing the exact skin tone and color of the 400 plus individuals who sat for the artist Byron Kim. His family and friends, his co-workers and neighbors, complete strangers. This piece is aptly titled Synecdoche, which is a figure of speech where a part is made to represent the whole and vice versa. Each one of these panels is stunning on their own. Google it, it looks better online. But how much more beautiful is it to see them together? Each an essential part of a magnificent whole. Friends, that is what it means to truly love yourself to see and embrace the fact that you were created with such affection and intention that when God looks at you, God sees nothing but good. 
the creator of the universe sees all of your quirks and your flaws, your talents and your inadequacies, sees everything you are and says, this is my child, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. But it doesn't end there because God calls us to zoom out and see ourselves as part of something bigger and more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. As it turns out, making it all about us is only making us sad and alone. So if you really want to do something nice for yourself, do something nice for someone else. Ironically enough, the key to your survival is the whole. But the whole can't survive without you either. We are in this together, but we also need you to be yourself. As Warner mentioned, this past Friday, we had our ninth annual Kenneth O. Jones Distinguished Service Awards Dinner, a night where we celebrate four individuals who have served the church in extraordinary ways. When a friend asked me what I was doing this weekend, I told her, I have a big church dinner, to which she replied, that's cool, but is it fun? I assured her, it's the most fun because I get to spend my night in a room full of past recipients, present recipients, and future recipients of this sacred award. People who would rather ask you about your life than brag about theirs. People who are more interested in promoting the work of the church than getting a promotion at work. People who relish the opportunity to celebrate four individuals because of their contribution to the whole. My favorite moment of the night was when recipient Porter Bink said, I stand on the shoulders of giants, or in the words of the turtle on the fence post, I didn't get here on my own. No, sir, you didn't. None of us did. Because if we look hard enough, as it turns out, we are living in a world full of giants, a world full of Glenda Morelands and Jema Tongues, Johnny Lookabills, a world full of people like you, people who love God so much, who love themselves so well, that they might just continue in the footsteps of Jesus himself and save the world as we know it. Friends, go from this place walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, loving God, loving ourselves, and loving a world so desperately in need of the beautiful, the broken, the beloved you. And all of God's children said, Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website. FAPC.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331. Thank you.